even though when Tom and Ray hear me say it, they say, and I thought we were a bunch of hacks, this is the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, and I am your host, Brian Heineser. Joining me this evening, the lovely, the talented Mac. Hey, how you doing tonight? I'm podcasting from the scorching wastes of Lakewood. And the I almost sound better quality, Ian. Almost. Okay, we'll give you that. All right. And of course, our uh, most famous host of them all, Kimberly. Hey, everybody. Hope you're staying cool. It is a tough job doing so in Denver these days. And how is everybody doing this evening? Besides, are comfortably warm. Did anybody get the Tom and Ray reference? No. No. no nobody? No. I would have if you'd gotten my cross reference. So earlier. Somebody out there listens to Car Talk, and they're going to think that's hilarious. Okay. I heard. I heard. Car talk is finally ending. They are. They're ending in September. I yeah. Do, do you think maybe we could get that slot on NPR? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I know it's not a quality slot, but it, you know, that no. Should Should we get the listeners to maybe start a petition? Maybe? You know, I, I I think that there are both of them. Yeah, there are <laughs> both of them. Get both of them to start a petition. <laughs> so uh, you were saying it's uncomfortably warm out there, Kimberly? Uh huh. I'm not going to say I find it uncomfortably warm, but I did have to detour a few times around magma flows yeah. when I was driving this afternoon. Yeah, I don't know about you guys. I don't have AC in my house um, because in Colorado, in all of the 15, 17 years I've been here, you've needed it on like maybe three days in the summer, a mm. year, and that's it. It's like it's hardly worth it, but I can't believe we're only in June. and uh, We've been and having rest of days. Yeah. 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 I have a swamp cooler. It was working pretty well. Swamp cooler. Love it. Yeah. Actually, I'm a little chilly. Still, they like day. You can still get up there. Yeah. I'm making snowballs right now. I'm going nice. packing them together, waiting to throw them at somebody who's going to come in the door. Whew. I'll tell you what. I will come over. You may throw one at me. I will, <laughs> I will appreciate it. Well, and, and on top of that, I'm drinking a nice... Uh, uh, I think it's Wickford Irish Style Cream Ale. It's lovely. Wow. Good yeah. job. I think it's water. Water. Well, water's good too, you know. Not a lot of nutrients in it though, so. Extra fluoride though for, you know, being mind controlled. Tinfoil helmet. Tinfoil helmet. Alright, hey, let's, uh, let's do some announcements. It looks like we've got two. Yeah, I don't really have any right now. I apologize to uh, to our public. I've just been extremely busy. There is stuff going on. Check out your meetup. But the ones I really wanted to mention are the two conferences coming up here in Colorado. On July 21st, coming up is the mini one-day conference out of Humanists Doing Good. It's out in Grand Junction, which, of course, is a bit of a hike for us, but I'll be there for sure. I don't know if anybody else is. It's a free conference um, with some really great stuff about building community from a national organization and a couple of other speakers. I think it'll be really great. Uh, I don't know if any of you are planning to go. Like I said, it's you know it's a good hike, but um, but it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's Grand Junction. That's not exactly a uh, well. I guess it's a day trip if you want to. I mean, it's quite a drive though. It's yeah. quite a yeah. drive, and I, I will tell you, my memories of going to Grand Junction as a child would be that you take the temperature in Denver. And you add about 20 degrees and you've got Grand Junction. Wow. That so, would be good today. Of course, that could be perception, not reality. It oh. is warmer. It, well, no, it is certainly warmer out there because, I mean, that's that's where we grow our peaches on the western slope out there. Oh, yeah. So, it's okay. so yeah, I'm, I I think it uh, – Anyway, anybody who out. can go, please check it out. I'll be there signing autographs, whatever. Um, it'll be fun. And then, of course, because I cannot mention it enough. 
the Atheist Alliance of America having their big national conference here in Denver, Labor Day weekend. You know you want to go to this. There's going to be incredible speakers there. It will be truly an amazing event. I absolutely promise we've been working really hard on it. We need people to sign up, show your interest, and kind of really get it running. So please check out the website, register. If you can't manage to do the entire weekend, there are day passes. There's all sorts of different options out there. And feel free to contact me directly if you have any questions. But I guarantee you, this is going to be something you do not want to miss. Excellent. All right. So before we move on, um, yeah. Ian, can you give us a little bit of an update on Comic-Con? It was a blast. Um, had a lot of fun. Um, all sorts of guests, of course. The, my boys, I think, had the um, best experience when they met Bruce Boxleiter, who played Tron. And they're like, cool, this is Tron! Uh, I loved him in uh, Babylon 5. Yeah, that, that was another thing I was really into. So it was cool to meet him. Um, Wasn't he also in, like, an Indiana Jones-type TV series? He was in um uh like mystery thing called No no it was uh he was Bruce Boxleitner was in uh Bring Him Back Alive. That uh, he was basically playing Frank Buck, I remember now. I haven't seen that one. Was that Western? No, it was it was basically like a Frank Buck was a was like a, a hunter for circuses and zoos. Okay. Trapping animals, essentially. But there was another T V series right around that time called Tales of the Gold Monkey, and I had those two mixed up for a second. I remember telling them those monkeys. But yeah, so you know, a lot of guests. Uh, another cool experience. I wish I could remember. Actually, I'm going to look up her name real quick. But um, on the third day, Sunday, um, we took my son's garlic costume that he made for um, my high con about eight months ago. And we were, um, he was walking around in that throughout the convention. And we could not go more than five feet without being stopped. They loved the costume, which was really cool. Uh, so we got a lot of people taking pictures of him with it. But the coolest story from that is um, I don't watch the show, True Blood. Yep. But um, one of the stars from True Blood was there. And I'm trying to remember her name right now, but I can find it just a moment. So is it the one who plays Suki's Deckhouse? Her name is Kristen Bayer. Hmm. I'm horrible pronunciation, you guys know that. B-A-U-E-R. Blonde, fairly okay. attractive. B-A-U-E-R what? is probably Bauer. Bauer? Okay. Well, Kristen, Kristen Bauer. Bauer. She actually, she was leaving her booth to use the restroom, but she had to make a detour and pull my son aside to get a picture of him in his garlic costume. <laughs> so he actually can say, um, a attractive celebrity wanted his picture. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was we great. actually went over there on Friday night just to kind of check it out. I didn't think it was going to be anywhere near as big as it was. The line looked to be at least an hour and a half long just to get in. And I didn't have, unfortunately, the whole weekend. But, I mean, everybody was so psyched. It was it was great. The initial line to get tickets was um, the only real wait we had. But we had ours already reserved. Um, the, the line Saturday was a lot worse to get your passes. And then there wow. was a line that built up afterward to get in. But that was just, as soon as they um, opened up, that line moved like crazy. Hmm. The, the lines weren't too bad. And from some people who have been to, like, the San Diego Comic Con, they, they said they actually preferred this because while it was crowded, it wasn't as crowded. You could actually move around here and do the stuff. While in San Diego, you really are like, you know, shoulder to shoulder, barely getting by. Yeah. So it was fun. Lots of costumes, artists, a lot of creativity and stuff going on. Well, and just, I'm just so excited that Denver is becoming such a big spot in things. You know, we're really making our way in a, in a new way around here on, on so many different topics. And, and sci-fi well, comics is great, yeah. too. It surprised me that it took so long because if you think about it, we are actually a great location because oh, yeah. you look at the states around us, they're all kind of empty. And we are really kind of this oasis in the middle of it all. 
because uh, a lot of the people that came to Denver, they know, you know, people from Wyoming, New Mexico, Kansas, they know Denver and get the big stuff because they don't have um, the population in there. So they love it when Denver does because that's a day trip. They can come down Denver, they can stay for the weekend and go back. It's not really out of the way. And it doesn't cost as much as flying out to California. Yeah, well, you know, that, my sister. By the way, is, Ian, where when does your job for the Denver? When does your job for the Denver uh, Tourism Bureau start? Whenever they want to hire me, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> my sister is heading out actually to Comic Con in uh, in the one in California, and she like she'll prepare her whole schedule before she goes. She'll so that she knows exactly where she needs to be to get into these things because you've got to get in line before yeah. you can get in there, and uh, and of no, course. There was a few problems with that at the Denver one, you know, but from what I've gathered at San Diego, it's a lot worse. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, I, I don't know that, I mean, it's a lot of people. I'm not sure that I'm... It wasn't that bad, honestly. Yeah. Even Saturday when it was at its crowdest, um, crowdest... <laughs> Most <its> crowded. <laughs> um, you could still get around fairly well. So. Yeah, all right. I recommend it. I'm going again next year. I have every intention of it. Cool. All right, hold on here. Let's hold up, guys. We have an echo. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now let's go ahead and move on to our main topic, and we're going to talk about perception this evening. And I, uh, I, I perceive Ian as our okay sole problem here. <laughs> I'm the problem. <laughs> so what, what, what is, what is perception? I definitely. Well, I guess we'll start off with the most basic definition. And once my computer decides to get up, um, so according to dictionary.com, um, the act or facility of apprehending by means of the senses and of the mind, cognition, understanding. So it's kind of a, um, when, when they're talking about perception, they're talking about, um, the neurology. Is that right? About how this is constructed in the brain, our perception? Yeah, how, how we t- basically how we take in everything and um, put it together. So, what are our modes of perception? Um, well, you know, the, the, the obvious stuff, the five senses. Okay. You know, sight, sound, feeling, hearing. Oh, I already did sound. Taste. Yeah. Touch. Like, oh, smell. Touch. Okay. Taste, so, taste, smell. All those five. And, and those, you know, those, those are the basics. But. We also kind of you know, have some subconscious stuff going on that's kind of outside those senses and adds to it. And that's really probably what you know we're going to get into tonight is how our senses can be fooled, how how we take it, what the information we take in is altered in our head, and you know we have really little control over that. What you see is not necessarily what you get. And right, our, our senses mess with us. Our, our minds aren't always on it. And isn't that you know? I, what um I guess Kimberly isn't that kind of what uh, Sam Harris was hinting at in his uh his, in his book Free Will? I I didn't read the book. I only went to the presentation. But I I think you're kind of right that uh, there's some stuff in there about how we're not really directly in control of the way we our brains handle all of the data coming in sometimes. So what happens is is we do a lot of stuff. We perceive things. Our our brain is perceiving these things. And giving us an interpretation of, of what we're seeing. But it's because, of course, everything that we see has to be interpreted by our brains. Right. And, and feel. So, yeah, well, everything. Um, and the, the first link I have here after the definition of perception is to a show that is on Discovery Channel called Head Game. 
each episode basically looks at different areas of um, the way we interact socially and looks at how our mind process, processes the information and, you know, causes us to act in ways we don't have control over. And uh, on the first episode, um, so far there's only three. I'm hoping they do more because it was a brilliant show. It seems like they've only gotten three out there so far. Have you the first actually, one was on conformity. Have you actually watched the show? Yes, I've watched all three episodes. Okay, you have. Before. Yeah. So the first one was on conformity, and it did a lot of stuff where um, they would have a sign um, at this museum that say, um, follow this line, do not deviate from the line. And people would follow it, even if it led them around in a pointless circle. They would not question stuff. And there's a lot of stuff on how we conform. But the best one that fits this is they had a guy sitting, standing in the middle of a park looking at a tree. Now, apparently, one person by themselves does not attract other people. You need a, a group of four or more, basically going off the idea that nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. There actually is a truth to that. As a, so, there's been similar studies done where like somebody will look up in the sky at something, and if it's one person doing it, they'll pretty much pass them by. But if it's two or three people doing it, then people will start to look as they go by, trying to figure out what these people are looking at. And that's what this is. So, so at first I had one person. I wanted to walk by. Okay, let's add a few more. So you have a small group looking in the tree. Would something? What are you looking at? And they say, "Oh, there's a snake up in that tree." And they point to where the snake is, and people would actually start describing the snake moving. And they, "Oh yeah, I can see it. It's coming. Oh wow, look, yeah, there's a snake up there." And then of course afterwards, you know, people would pull aside and said, "There's no snake." And you know, the people would explain exactly what happened. And these people would sit and say, "No, no, no, I saw a snake. I know there's a snake up in that tree. There's no way there's not a snake." And it was the conformity thing. So you have a group of people sitting there saying, look, there's something there. Your mind is going to start, you know, like, oh, okay, it's there because everyone else is telling me it's there. I better fit in. Did you, you remember, ever- uh, you guys remember way back when, when we did that episode, uh, we were talking about that, um, not 2020, the one where the, uh, the one where everybody was sitting there with smoke coming into the room, filling out their application. Yeah. The one where they were doing the electrical tests on people. The the, the whole thing was about conformity and basically right. following the herd. Yeah, Head Games has a, a, some of the exact same kind of stuff. Um, yeah. have, it, you, it, have you guys been to the Butterfly Pavilion? Yes. They used to have an iguana that lived in the tree, uh, in a particular tree. And I remember one day the kids and I were there looking. And we thought we saw that iguana up there. And uh, um, we thought we had found it, right? Because it's always in that tree. And we walked around kind of their hedge thing, and there's this iguana looking at you. It's the same kind of thing. You know, because that iguana is always in that tree, that's where we look for it. And this one day, it wasn't there. But we thought but we had seen it. saw it anyway. We saw it anyway. Absolutely. Right. Oh, yeah. No, our, our minds can play tricks on us. And a lot of it is, you know, we can convince ourselves that things are there when they're not. And I recommend all three of the episodes. They have a head game so far. They're very much worth doing, and they each have something like this, showing kind of how we perceive things and you know how our mind will you know mess with us. I think that the other thing that is interesting about this, you talk about these people, you know, like going around in a circle and not questioning it, and all these other like social norms that we don't question. But when you ask people about them, hey, you think if there was these lines, you know, going in a circle that you would just continue to follow them and not question them? <laughs> of course I wouldn't do that. Right. Why, why the heck would I do that? But when you're in those situations, people perform differently. Yeah. It, it, it's a lot of subconscious. The other thing I love about the show is after they did a demonstration like that, they would go through 
and explain. This is the part of your mind that triggered that reaction, and for evolution reasons, this is why it looks like it does it. And right. it was really great on explaining how our minds work and what's really making us do this, because there's so much going on subconsciously that we're not aware of. And it's amazing how we manipulate ourselves without even trying. You know, it, it, For instance, the, yeah. the snake is perceived by what, the, uh, what they refer to as the reptile brain. Uh, Why are you groaning about that? <laughs> it really is the, uh, the yeah. reptilian brain that is controlling a lot of these, you know, kinds of responses. Well, because you're because if if the herd sees something, then the herd is probably giving you a danger sign, and right. so you'd better see what the herd sees and be better be ready to react to what the herd reacts to. Well, and we certainly talk about this in that we have a, we, that we'll get these false positives that we'll think that there's something there and we'll, re, and we'll react to it whether there is or not because when we were living in the jungle it was safer to overreact than underreact right because people who underreacted when we were living in the dangerous situation died generally weren't people anymore yeah 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 I, and and this also comes back to when we're doing these kinds of things it isn't it isn't our we're we're not conscious of it. The brain is in charge, and we're just and we're just doing right. We're not actually thinking about it. If we actually thought about it, if we were actually putting that much energy into processing it, we probably wouldn't do this kind of stuff. But we we don't. A lot of times, it's you know it, it's it takes much less energy to just you know let kind of right. just follow along. Well, well, and I, I just started reading a new book. Well, not a new book, but a new book for me called Thinking Fast and Slow. I have it. I haven't Daniel started reading it. Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. You have it? I have it. I, I haven't started we, it yet, though. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. I'm just at the very beginning of it. But what it's talking about, um, he doesn't define it so much as conscious versus unconscious. He, um, so far anyway, is breaking it down into the fast mind and the slow mind. And Slow is not like any kind of a bad thing here. It's just the different ways we react. There's so many things that we react to in our lives that happen instantly and effortlessly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. those are the fast things that we sometimes call unconsciousness, but it's just instinctual. It's the kind of stuff we're hardwired to process instantly, to take that information in, and that feeds the second system, what he calls system two, or slow thinking, which is how we actually go through a process of reasoning to get to something. The other thing that I just started this new chapter, and I, I wish I'd read the whole thing, but I, I'm afraid I've had too much going on. Um, but what he just started talking about was how we have inherently lazy brains. So even when we go through the trouble of figuring something out, our brains will often shortcut to, to something simple, something based on a previous experience. So it's really fascinating how they interact, and, and they've done all sorts of studies to kind of determine which part of the brain is working and how one feeds the other, and it's, you know, there's feedback loops and all sorts of uh, really interesting stuff. So I, I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I'm using conscious and unconscious probably inappropriately. It probably is much more what you're saying. I, well, and I'm, I would think instinctual versus conscious. Yeah, exactly, and that, I think that's a better way of looking at it than what I was saying. In the third episode, they did an experiment where um, the people who were in a sporting goods store, the guy that, this guy goes up to help him. He comes up with them, he has a neck brace on, a, um eye patch, his arms in a sling, and a few other things. Well, during the exchange, you know, the, the guy asked for help, and then he's being distracted. Every time there's a distraction, the guy would change something about himself. 
And by the time he was done, he had taken the eye patch off, taken the sling off, taken the neck brace off, changed jackets, done a few other things. So he didn't look at all the same as what they walked into. But they didn't perceive any of that because their minds were, weren't noticing it because they weren't being told those were important enough. Hmm. And so you, know, you often overlook little things because um, your mindset not worried about these small little changes. And personally, I think that's why most guys don't notice when their wives come home with haircuts. But... Um, <laughs> I even told my wife that while we watched an episode. But still, we, we these small changes are not we're not supposed to be concerned with because they happen all the time. They're minor, and our brains don't want to worry about that kind of stuff. So they want to focus on what they consider the more important thing. And what, so, you're, you know, what you're talking about kind of reminds me a little bit of Young Frankenstein with the, um, the hump. with the hump that keeps changing yeah. sides. But I yeah. think you're absolutely <laughs> right in that you know our our minds are processing so much information that they they are shortcutting all the time that's important that's not important and we see it in a lot of different places the way that um you know i've always been fascinated by the fact that if there's uh an odor in a room and you're stuck with it you know like people use the example of being at the zoo and being in like you know the the monkey house right. or whatever uh, you know right. when you first walk in there you it's you almost want to throw up yeah it's so overwhelming and five minutes later, your brain is, st the odor's still there. Your brain has just put it aside because it's not changing and it's nothing that it can do anything about. You've gotten used to it. Well, and we, and we do that. We, you know, we tune out we, information that is irrelevant. I mean, you can drive past something on the highway every day and, and it could be a building. And one day that building is gone. It's been demolished. You wouldn't know. You would drive past it until one day you would go, I wonder how long that building's been gone. Yep. Exactly. I've had that happen a number of times. Yeah. So, no, our, our, that, I definitely recommend the show Head Games. Two words. Apparently, they also have one that's one word that's a game show. So, if you do Head Games as one word, that's a whole different show than Head Games as two words. All right. But, so, Head Games is two words on Discovery Channel. I recommend it. I hope they do some more episodes. Very good. Gets into a lot of this stuff. Uh, very much worth seeing. So. All right. And then the next two topics here are actually kind of related. Because both of them deal with the idea of what we've seen in pop culture, like movies and TV, but but what we see is far from the reality. So what we're exposed to is very often wrong for you know knowledge-wise, and in the case of drowning, can actually be dangerous because well, we're not being taught. Yeah, I thought the drowning one was particularly interesting because. Um, after reading that, I, I, I'm not sure that I would recognize drowning. Right. So, um, let's do the first one first, since that's a bit lighter. Okay. And we'll do that okay. drowning one. So the first one's on sword fighting. And I, I'm sure we've all seen, you know, I was just, just watching Zorro before we, um, came in here and started the podcast, but Zorro and all that stuff with the really creative and, you know, fancy sword fighting stuff, um, but especially like in the medieval movies and such, the sword fighting they show is, from what they've discovered now, is not what was being taught. No, it, it, if you look at what you see in the movies, the point team seems to be to hit the other person's sword as many times as you possibly can before you finally, you know, stick it under their arm and make it look like they've been run through. Right. But in truth, you basically were taught you smash into the other person, you do everything you can to, you know, it's destroy them. <laughs> it's fast, bloody, and brutal. Right. I've taken, I've actually taken fencing. Both uh, never did foil, but I did epee and saber, and it's it's incredible how ritualized that is. But it's still more close to 
the actual art of sword fighting well, as it was practiced than some of the stuff you see in the movies. Not according to this the article. Stuff, the stuff you see in the movies is made to look, it's right. made for you to look at, and yeah. it's eye candy. Right, but you would probably get slaughtered if you tried to do that in a real sword fight, because a real sword fight puts your life on the line. You don't sit back and play around with people. You basically yeah. go in there. Let's, let's take, for example, fight. let's take, for example, uh, a lot of people's first exposure to sword play. Let's say a lot of people in this generation's first exposure is going to be like Conan the Barbarian. Okay? And that fancy move where he's spinning the sword back and forth in front of him right. doesn't have any purpose whatsoever, except maybe to tire your arm out. Well, it's kind of like that excellent scene in uh, Raiders, where the guy's doing all the fancy sword moves, and then Indy just uh-huh. shoots him. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, you, uh, you don't bring a sword to a gunfight. It's just not done. Actually, the Mythbusters, a knife to a gunfight actually could work real well. Um, you know, th- just a little bit of trivia. I'm sure you guys know that that scene in Raiders, that happened because Harrison Ford was sick. Yeah, he wasn't feeling well that day. They actually choreographed this big, long fight with his whip against the sword. And on, like, I don't know how many takes into it, he just pulled out the gun and shot the guy. And Spielberg is like, no, no, print that one. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was interesting. So the, uh, basically the article was saying that even what we think of sword play and even most of the way – he said even the way – you know, the fencing and stuff that they're teaching is nothing like what they were actually doing. And right. what you were doing may have been closer, but it sounds like it's not, still not even it's close. Not, it's not close. It's yeah. closer. Well, closer. Well, okay, thing, yeah. They weren't teaching it as a sport. We're teaching it as a sport as a way to, you know, be sportsmen. You don't teach sportsmanship in, um, when basically the whole idea is you kill them as fast as possible. There's nothing oh, sporting yeah. for them. <laughs> right. So, you know, th- there's a whole different mentality when you're saying you go in, you slaughter them, you break them apart as quick as possible rather than go in, be sportsmen, give them a fair chance, you know, whole different thing. Well, like uh, on, a, on a related subject, too, we've got a perception that a knight in armor, if he went down on his back, was completely helpless. And we have that perception because of drawings we have uh, woodcuts from the time of a knight being lifted onto his horse with a crane but that was as my understanding is that was one very heavy knight who actually didn't have full control over his armor whereas a man in armor the weight's equally distributed and he's he knows how much weight he's carrying and he can carry that all the time Hmm. and get up and mount a horse and everything else he needs to do well, there's probably a difference between what noblemen were wearing and what knights were wearing as well. True. True. All right, let's pause again. Okay, so uh, sword play, uh, bad, drowning, bad, drowning, bad as well. Yeah, drowning, bad. What's what's up with this? This is such a downer. It's the same kind of thing um, as with the sword play. With the drowning in the movies, you see people splashing around, screaming, "Help! Help! Help!" Really going at it, and that is about as far from the way it is as possible. Apparently, drowning is a very quiet thing. And if now, see, Leo did it right. He just slipped backwards into the water. But basically, what it is is your body is going to do what instinctually it needs to do, and that is trying to get air. And if your body is saying, "Hey, listen, the most important thing right now is to get air in, into you," it's not going to let you scream. No noise is going to be going out because that takes away from the ability to breathe. Right. And I thought it was interesting. He says, you know, of course, um, the respiratory system's first job is to breathe, and secondarily, it was built to um, for for speech. So if you can't breathe, there's no way that you're going to be able to speak. 
Right. It, it, your body knows what your priorities are. Right. And if it, if it senses you're having problems breathing, it doesn't give a damn if you can talk. It's going to be doing everything it can to get you breathing. And so, um, basically, drowning is a very quiet thing. Your body basically isn't flailing around, moving. It's starting. It, it gets into a apparently um, fairly standard pose that is doing everything it can to allow you the best uh, um, ability to breathe as possible. Right. And most people, uh, you know, it mentions here that um, approximately 750 children will drown next year. About 375 of them will do so within 25 yards of a parent or other adult. Basically saying, you know, you're not People don't necessarily notice it happening. That they are, oh, look, this, hey, hi, and move on because they don't see anything that registers to them as dangerous. Yeah, nothing out of the ordinary. Yeah, and it's kind of scary that Hollywood has been able to get it into our heads that drowning is this noisy, violent thing, and so that's what we look for. Uh, it's one of those things that, honestly, you know, doesn't need to be out there more. We need to be more aware of because it can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and so they, he gave they give what um, some signs on how you can tell if people are drowning. Uh, head low in the water, mouth at water level, head tilted back with mouth open, eyes glassy and empty, unable to focus, eyes closed, hair over forehead or eyes, uh, not using legs vertical, um, hyperventilating or gasping, trying to swim in a particular direction but not making headway, uh, trying to roll over on back, appears to climb an invisible ladder. Okay, I, and appearing to climb an invisible ladder could look like the arm waving movements, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the first ones that you described there, eyes glassy, mouth at water level, and things like that. I would look at that and I would think that the person was just relaxing in the water. Well, right. the most important thing that they said, and particularly with kids, is that kids make noise when they're when they're playing in the water. I and certainly I can tell you that my girls are. You know, very noisy when they're in the water, and so if the noise stops, there might there's probably a problem, and you should you know that that's when that should it be the immediate cue to investigate is when the noise stops. Makes sense. So does it does it go into? And I just wonder from an evolutionary tact. I understand what you're kind of saying here that the body is basically focusing all of its resources on breathing, and yet in drowning situations that instinct is is your death right you because you just get more exhausted you know what i'm saying like not yelling in a social situation is obviously less uh good or 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 less uh beneficial for you than if you were able to yell if the body said you know i need to get help right now make noise you know use the if you only have like this little bit of energy left use it to create as much attention for yourself as possible so right. it's it's interesting that we've evolved this way, and yet it's a a strategy that doesn't work. Well, it's because that the ability to speak evolved on top of the respiratory system. It's a secondary system. The primary system is the breathing system. So that's what the so that's what the the mind takes care of first. That's what the brain, you know, it, its first priority is breathing. Second priority is speaking. Okay, I I got what you're saying. Yeah. It's 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 interesting as we've yeah. developed into more social creatures. Like you say, the 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 thing that would have made you survive is getting the help in a social yeah. situation. Of course, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and that's but, a, but that's the fact that point. the fact that staying quiet doesn't seem to help no matter what the situation is means it's not evolutionarily helpful. But I, again, right. I, I guess we don't evolve necessarily to live in water and to escape drowning situations. There's no. bigger pressures on survival. Yep. 
All right, uh, move on to matrixing. This was interesting. Okay, it is, and it's similar to pareidolia, but um, it's it's basically it's more based upon pattern recognition. Well, um, okay. it's sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that's the distinction that the article tried to make and failed to make the distinction. But uh, go ahead, and I'll explain, and and I'll, I'll go into why I think that is. Okay. Yeah. What the article is saying is that it's it's um. Matrixing is less like pareidolia. Pareidolia is seeing things that aren't there. Matrixing is supposed to be seeing patterns and forming patterns out of what you uh, out of what you see. In other words, you're basically seeing patterns that are there, and your brain is assembling them in a way that says this pattern is something that I recognize. And to me, that is pareidolia. That is that is what it is. Is is looking at a pattern and interpreting it. And we do this with faces in particular. Right. So I think that he really tried to hard to make a distinction because he's trying to to try and, and, and draw a line to what is likely to be a paranormal and what is likely to be just our brains making it up. And so I think that he was really trying to to, to, to carve a wedge there. Um, but in doing so, he kind of just reinforced to me what pareidolia was from the beginning. Yeah, and as I said, they're 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 essentially much the same thing. The distinction that he's trying to make is maybe not as much of a distinction as it could be. And I, yeah, I I don't think that he made his case. Um, it, it seemed awfully weak to me uh, what he was trying to do because you know because pareidolia is looking at something and you're in creating a pattern there. Like if I stare at my ceiling, I have these little dots up there. I can see faces and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. up there, right? And, and that's seeing faces in the texture on the wall, exactly. Seeing, um, hearing patterns in the static and thinking that you're hearing. Your mother talking to you. Right. And he really kind of wanted to make a separation there because I think that, he, that I felt like the article was very much trying to make a pro-paranormal um, argument. And so they were trying to – he was trying to separate out the pareidolia as being this this other thing and what he is describing as being something real. Mm-hmm. There, his pattern is real, but this, the, but these other patterns are pareidolia. Is what I, how I felt the article was trying to come across. He was really trying to make that argument because he'd like to make the argument for, um, uh, for EVPs and and such as being, you know, actual words and not pareidolia. So I honestly did not read the entire article. I, I apologize. So is he differentiating based on vision versus auditory? Not necessarily. Not, not really. He's differentiating based upon, with pareidolia, he's saying you're making things that aren't there. You're picking out things that aren't there. With matrixing, he's saying that you're picking up on patterns and those patterns are real and you're making something out of the pattern that's real. Okay, uh, and it's funny. At least that's my I, I understanding. Of it. Okay, I did a book group last night on uh, the thirty-six arguments for God, which it, it's a whole different thing. I won't go too far into it, but one of the points we made was just how uh, th- this kind of mystical understanding of the universe and why people want to believe that there's purpose and and pattern. And I think it was Shermer who who uses the term patternicity, which sounds a lot like what this is talking about. And that's that, again, that tendency for humans to see patterns in anything 
and ascribe design, function, purpose into them. And I kind of am with you, Brian, in that it's just an extension of pareidolia. We like patterns. We like seeing things that remind us of other things in our brain. To go back to the original discussion, shortcuts to that looks like a face. Now I see a face. Now what does that? Now who does that face remind me of? Or what? What kind of things does it bring to my mind? Where all it was was just a pattern of shapes that we're really good at recognizing. And, um, you know, in the bigger concepts, when you start taking different concepts and not just visual or audio cues, but the way the world works and, you know, you see, you know, the beauty of, of an ecosystem, let's say, working together so perfectly, it seems impossible that such a thing could happen by chance. And I think people start ascribing, I see a pattern here. You know, patterns are important. I should pay attention to them. And it kind of spirals out of control from there. Actually, my thought on the beauty of an ecosystem working together and it couldn't happen by chance, I'm thinking, no, it didn't happen by chance. It happened by trial and error, and it all eventually worked together because that's the only way that it can work. Right. That's the only way it can sustain itself is by eventually coming to into a system. Yeah, I, and we were just kind of talking but about the people who then see in there that, um, you know, therefore, there must be a Therefore, pattern. there must be God. Right, right, right. And again, I, I think it's all of that, you know, pattern, pattern identification that, again, we're good at. And again, to Brian's point, that is the definition of pareidolia. I think it just extends beyond the visual and auditory senses into that gestalt stuff that we do as well. When we take little bits and pieces of different things, and that's how right. people come up with, and therefore ghosts, or therefore Jesus, or you know, all those kind of or, things. I, I think really you know, are. You may uh, catch. You may catch a scent of something when you're meeting somebody for the first time, and because that scent reminds you of somebody else, you may think that that person that you meet for the first time is like the person that you remember, and that could go good or bad to the detriment or to the to the uh, uh, to the positive on the relationship. Right. Just as another example of a different type of pareidolia. Well, and so I threw up, you know, the face on Mars, um, unmasking the face on Mars. And you threw up the face on Mars? I threw up the face on Mars. It was me. Okay. What did you have to eat? <laughs> Granite. Apparently. Apparently. Uh, so the face on Mars um, was a low-res photo from Viking um, in 1976. And when it took this picture of this particular region on Mars, um, it, it, it came back and you know, after it, it looked like it could be a face. It was, it was a really interesting picture. Um, and then subsequently in 1988, they, they, there was another um, picture that was taken. This one looks less like a face, but it kind of still has the mouth and everything. And then in 2001, um, we finally got a, a higher res picture and it looks like a mountain. You just like it just, or not a, maybe not a mountain, um, but just a, uh, it, it looks like a feature on the surface. Mm-hmm. And, but, you look at that and it looks like a face of some sort. You know, yeah, the, that the original photos. picture is stunning. Yeah. I mean, it looks like it can't be anything other than an intentionally carved face right. in the original picture. I mean, I, I get why people do it. Like you say, why, why you see it. Our brains are, are anything that's got like, you know, eye sockets and a mouth and a nose yeah. and is vaguely circular. And yeah. I guess this would also be a good time to bring up them. Um, so I, I got some feedback last week and, and I think that this is a, a reasonable time to, to put this in here. Um, I, I said that uh, Texas had mountains. And Howard wrote back saying that uh, he's been there and he's been to the highest point and it doesn't have mountains. 
But of course, Texas has lots of mountain ranges, and I wrote him back saying, well, could this just be your perception? And he wrote back saying, yeah, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to Coloradoans, Texas doesn't have mountains. Exactly. That, that was my point it, You know, to Howard, yeah, that uh, it was his perception that it didn't have mountains. And of course, it has several mountain ranges. <laughs> there was a... There was a movie, which I I, I think I'm going to catch one of these days, but it was on Hulu. The Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain. Mm. And it's all about this surveyor. I, I guess he's a surveyor. And they asked him to come check out this hill in Wales to see if it was actually, if it was high enough to be considered a mountain. Yeah, wasn't that Hugh Grant? or I don't know. What was that? I, I just happened to see the title of it and read the synopsis and... It guess, sounded kind of interesting. Yeah, it's Hugh Grant pre-prostitute. <laughs> as long as it's post The Lady and the Highwayman, I'm good. All right. That was a terrible, terrible movie. My parents gave us this movie because they couldn't get through it, and we couldn't get through it. And we passed it on to somebody else. I don't remember who. All right. So getting back yes. to the face on Mars. <laughs> getting back to the um, face on Mars. That was, that the face was on Mars is not thing. Hugh Grant. No. Not you, Grant. But now the people, what do you think is going through? Because there's still people who believe very fervently in this, right? Oh, well, absolutely. In, in, absolutely. In the car thing? Yeah. There's still people who believe that we never made it to the moon. Well, yeah. So, I, I guess I'm just like, what do you do with the evidence of like the two, you know, this 1976, 1998, 2001 photos is fairly conclusive. Well, just there yeah. without the science, just the pictures. Well, of course, what you know, it, it comes back to, well, NASA, NASA had to cover it up. Well, why did they release well, the photo in the I first place? I look at the 1976 photo versus the 2001 photo, and I could convince myself that it eroded. Well, I mean, yeah, you could. But here's the thing. Uh, is although that, there's nothing on Mars that could actually erode it, per se. Well, the surface is eroding all the time. Yeah, you know, but wind you know, and it's stuff. not like there's not like there's water enough to erode it in that in that period of time. Not in that area, but, no. Um, but it, it is interesting. Um, you know, I think that we would have loved to have found a structure that was carved on Mars. Right, well, Do you think we would have been there the already? Yeah. Right, if, if, if we could find something like that, there'd be no doubt that something they'd have the budget to um, get a man on Mars. I mean, we'd push for that like mad if there was suddenly real evidence. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know why NASA would have any reason to cover it up. Yeah. But because it would actually be, it would actually be more to their benefit to, uh, to enhance it and make it look like we really need to get there. They'll get a better budget that way. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm just, uh, you know, again, when we're talking about perception and the fact that, you know, we consider it the rational thing to take in more evidence and reevaluate our perception. You know, like I said, I mean, that that first picture uh, at the top of this article, I definitely can see the face, no problem at right. all. You know, but but my mind works to, wow, let, let's see an even better image of that. Like you said, let's get more detail. Does it right. have a, you know, does it, does, is it, is it have a happy face button or something like that? Is it, you know, have a logo on the bottom of it? I want more information. And like you say, as you get more information, my perception changes so that I have that disconnect between what my mind sees in the first picture and the rationalization that what I'm seeing in the last picture is, is the same structure and clearly my interpretation was wrong. Um, but you know, based, based on the different pixels and stuff like that. Like I said, I just, I'm fascinated by the people who still, their perceptions is unchanged by the evidence, you know, because they believed what they believed because they saw it. 
Right. And then they saw something else that disproved it. And that didn't matter because they still no, believed it, what they saw. But now they're they're basically saying I saw what I saw, and I'm like, but now you see something else. Why don't? Why isn't that belief based on you saw what you saw? Because we saw what we prefer. We saw what we prefer. That right. I think is an awesome point. Yeah. I mean, and, and saw, really kind of at the bottom of all of it. We saw something that evoked our imagination, and because we saw something that evoked our imagination, that's going to be. Our imagination is much more powerful than what we see. That's what right. this whole episode is about. You know, the other thing, though, is that we are much more comfortable, at least I, I can speak for myself, in the idea that my brain can trick me and that I can be fooled and that what I think I saw I right. may not be what was actually there. And because I'm comfortable with that, um, I I can accept the next piece of evidence that disproves it much easier. Then you're saying as uh, you as a skeptic as yeah. opposed to a non-skeptic. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Be- I agree. Yeah. Because I can I can go. Oh well. Yeah. I mean my my I I my mind I, I get fooled all the time. <laughs> I, I I think it's one of those reasons I know I I absolutely love watching magicians. I could watch magic tricks all day long. I just I I I'm, I love it. And and part of it is I think that same kind of thing of I love the fact that my brain just got completely bamboozled. Yeah, cuz you get fooled. That doesn't upset me at all. I I yeah. think it's awesome. Even if I think I know how it's done, I I mm. I, I might I I could very well be wrong because how many different ways are there to do that one thing? Yeah. I still remember when we talked about the uh the one that had James Randi stumped where the guy had uh had taped a dollar bill to a cockroach. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So moving on past the face on Mars. Yes. Facial recognition. Yep. And I didn't actually find the article I really wanted to find, which was one that my wife was talking about. They were talking about uh, men's faces versus women's faces and how I guess it's women's faces are not as recognizable upside down as men's faces are. So... Hmm. Anyway, I will keep looking for that article, but I didn't find it at this point. But and she couldn't remember where she found it. This article was interesting in that it, it, our ability, the way that our ability to evolve to identify the members of our group was was pretty impressive. And that we're able to do this awfully quickly. Well, you see the need for that. Right. Well, because we and, – and I – when you – this is a good thing because like when I take my uh, kids on a field trip and I've got a, and I've got a, a group of kids that I'm supposed to watch, right. you know, I can – you know, I, I, I kind of yeah, – I can kind of look at them and, and even though I don't always remember their names, I can usually identify their faces. Right. Yeah. And that allows you to come home with your own kids and not somebody else's. <laughs> it does. Well, I, yeah, that is helpful. Um, last summer and this summer, my youngest boy, who you guys know, is blonde as can be has dyed his hair black. And in both cases, it has thrown me off for a while. Last year, towards us, and seriously, within about a 10-minute time frame, I overlooked him like two or three times because I was looking for the blonde hair. Right. You know, if he's he's dyed his hair black, the next thing you got to watch out for is a lot of leather in him trying to drink your blood. I I don't understand this letting kids dye their hair business. What is this? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You're you're, you're not aware of how that works? (laughs) Yeah, really. I don't know how it happens. I mean, my kids have naturally blue and pink hair. <laughs> yeah, it, you watch a lot of anime. That's why. Oh, that that's happens. why. That's why I think that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> but so yeah, so anyway. that throws me off. It's a noticeable change for him, and I know what I'm supposed to look for in order to identify him. And you know, it, it takes a little bit of getting used to, especially you know, I, I know the height he's supposed to be at. I can normally look for him. Oh, blonde, blonde hair. That's most likely my kid. 
but when I'm looking and all I see is this dark black hair, I will overlook it because that's not what I train myself to register. Well, and your so, kid look. is really blonde. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. means yeah, at the at the point that he dyes his hair black, he makes a really really convincing goth. Keep him away from the eyeshadow. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, the thing that this article made me think about, though, is it made me think about the. Uh, we did something a while back. I, it was one of our first episodes. We were talking about the the mother giving the baby a neutral fra- a neutral face until the baby freaked out. Mother, the baby trying to do everything possible to make the mother smile. It's wow. not about facial recognition, but it is about recognizing facial facial expressions. Right. Yeah, there's something out there. But I also know that we, um, our oldest son, his first Halloween, I traumatized him greatly just by putting a mask on right in front of him. Yeah. I mean, he, he saw me put it on, and that he just started screaming. I took it right off, and so it was still me. But something about that change, it you know, obviously scared him. I'm trying yeah. to imagine a mask scarier than your face. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking President Nixon mask. <laughs> I am not a crook. So, it was definitely something there, and, you know, and like I said, he, he saw me do it. It's not like there's suddenly a monster that occurred out of nowhere. Right. How yeah. how old was he, and how old was he when you did he this? He would have been just under a year. Is that, is that object okay. permanence? What is that? What is that when the, what they call it? I guess... You're talking about the optical illusion thing? Well, no, there's something, th- and I'm trying to remember what it is now. It's, it's, chill, kids, they, they get to a point where, like, they, like, uh, if you if you come to my house every day and see my kids, right, and then one day we go to um to your house and, and see you there, they're confused because it's like, wait, you you do not belong here. You come to my place. Right. This is where okay. I identify with you. It's a really interesting, you know, concept to, to, because you can see it with every kid uh, around what two or th- two or three, where they start to realize. That people can be in different places, but it's really confusing for but them. But even that, I, I know people I've worked with who I only saw at work, and I didn't hang out oh. outside of work. And when I ran into them outside of work, it's taken me a few moments to realize who they were because they are out of place. That's right. That's that's what I was thinking. It it is object permanence. It's like um you can like uh, peekaboo. The reason it works so good, you can hide your face right in front of them, and to them you have disappeared, and then you pull it back, and you're there. Um, because, because that, they, they, they cannot, they don't have the perceptions, um, at that point to realize that you are behind whatever you have put in front of your face. So you are gone. They, they cannot perceive you behind that object. And I think that's what they call object permanence. That once you begin to realize that something can be, um, hidden by something else. And so at, at that point, it's just like the peekaboo. When you put on that mask, you disappeared. All he could right. see was that mask. Is that related to that idea that I still have a concept of my my room when I'm not in it kind of thing? I think so. I think that's object permanence, yeah. Okay. We should, I should, we should look that up specifically because it is interesting. Yeah. It is. And I'm probably misremembering it. But no, there's definitely some perception with where people are supposed to fit in. Stuff like that, and like I said, it's it's still with me. I I I know this person from this place. When I see them outside of that place, it'll take me a moment or two to place them because I'm so used to them as to where they belong in my mind. Right. And so when that's like not where uh, they belong, that's like it, a few times I've run into you when you're working, and I just happen to be cruising through a store, and it's right. like, oh, okay, weird. Hi. Well, 
that's why there, that's why you there can be something happening right in front of you and you won't see it because you're not expecting it. And this is why, you know, you could be looking right at something and not realize that it's there. Um, and I put a book list in here um, of some books, and, and one of them is The Invisible Gorilla. And That is the, such a great one. Isn't that a great book? And so one of the things that they did in that book is, um, and the, the video is everywhere now. Um, they, they put people in front of a, a video and they and they told them, we want you to watch um, how many times these basketball players, um, um, you know, exchange the ball. And they're supposed to count this. And then somebody in a gorilla suit would come right out in the middle of it and, you know, beat their chest and walk off. And a good a good portion of the people didn't realize that that happened. They were so focused on their task that they didn't see what was right in front of them. And okay. and people would accuse them of switching the video and, <laughs> and doing all sorts, all sorts of stuff like that. But it is interesting in that how our visual system works. When we don't expect to see something, we very well might not see it. And again, they brought this up in the thinking fast and slow about how, again, it's it's just that your brain is already occupied on something. It yeah. has a task. It's doing what it's doing. And so extraneous information is is ignored. And yeah. and like you're saying, if you're out shopping and you are not supposed to walk into Ian at that point and he's in front of you, your brain is literally unable to process his being there because you are working on something else. And like you say, you have have a relationship you have recognition but it's stored right. in a different place that's nowhere near accessible right now because you didn't expect to need it mm -hmm. and the task i'm usually focused on when i'm in the stores at that time of the day is you know hunting collectibles so head games um actually did cover that yeah so they did do some of that in my um, thing with the third episode of head games so yeah. all right well let's move on and talk about gaydar yeah, the science of gaydar. And now, this has got to be a good article because this is from the New York Times, and we all know that it's the paper of record. Absolutely, yes. You know, this is I, – I, 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 I am – I don't know. Even after th – this was an interesting article, but I'm still of the opinion that it's not as good as people would like to make it out to be. I, I agree. I don't think – I don't know. I And maybe it's just me. I, I don't know that I am that great at, at picking out people that uh, – picking out gay people. I, I just I... – Well, um, first time I met my wife's cousin, Peter, I I turned to her afterwards and said, is he gay? She's like, I'm pretty sure he is. He hadn't come out at that point yet. He has come out now. He is actually um, married to another man and everything. You know, there's no doubt he's gay. But he, he was one that I got the feeling from he was gay. Yet I've worked with a couple people who turned out to be gay that I had no clue they were gay. So, you know, it, it's not an accurate thing at all. There are times where it's obvious and times where you can't tell. Well, but okay, but Mac, tell us and a little bit about it, the, the article. Is it, you know, I guess my question, Ian, is the the cues you were getting off off of the cousin, were they physical only or were they subtle subtle social cues you were getting as well? I couldn't say. You know, it was, what, about 15 no, years ago? No, okay. You so. can tell us. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, what the article, what right. the article is talking about, is essentially they are saying that in in a study where they exposed people to faces without cultural cues, hairstyles, piercings, eyeglasses, tattoos, all digitally removed. In when they exposed people to these faces for milliseconds, their their uh, their gaydar was about 60% accurate with respect to identifying what the orientation of the person was. 
and they're saying that chance guessing would yield would yield 50% accuracy, but the 60% is replicable. In other words, they've they've had that same result in multiple circumstances. It's always been about 60%. Another thing that was interesting is that apparently the gaydar seems to be more accurate with women than it does with men. Um, let's really? See. They said, I, thought, I thought it was the they other. said that they said that it's with women's sexual orientation it's about 64% and at men's it's 57%. Hmm. It said that participants were more likely to incorrectly categorize a straight man as gay than to incorrectly categorize a straight woman as gay. I don't know. Kimberly, what do you think of this? I've, I've yeah, heard about it before and, um, and, and definitely thought it was an interesting study. Um, and I'm still unclear as to exactly what the methodology was. Uh, obviously, there's not um, a 50 to 60 percent. Again, I don't know if they're saying that people – I think they're saying that people were correct in their guesses 50 to 60 percent of the time. My question 60% is – 60 of the time. Okay. So how many – so they saw, say, 100 faces. How many of them were actually gay? And I, I guess the other thing that, that irks me about this study is that they knew what they were looking for. And, and so they were are, and so, I mean, did They're they show, were, were the people in the study 50-50 as far as whether they were gay or was it like only 10% of the people, uh, um, of the faces that they showed them were gay? So you're thinking the that's study exactly itself may have yeah. had confirmation uh, bias. That's what I, I, I kind of think so. I, I, I just, you know, there, are, I tell you what, there are some people that you can say that person's gay, but I think that that's because that's how they want to project, project. They want you to know what they're looking for. And I think that if somebody doesn't, I, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time believing that we can identify this just by facial features. And so th- somehow the, this study needs to be blinded. And I don't think that this was blinded. I think that these people were, that they were specifically asked, you know, to, to identify whether these people are gay or not. I think that I, if they had done this and they said, we want you to tell, to look at these faces and give us a list of things, um, that you think that you can tell from the faces. Right. So in in if they had chosen gay as one of the ones on there, um, maybe then I would be more encouraged. But if they're telling these people, we want you to pick out whether these people were were, were gay or not. And let's say that they did 50 50, then they have a 50 50 chance. And the fact that they're yep. slightly above that, I mean, if if it was only 10 percent of the people were gay and they were supposed to pick out gays and they still got 57 percent chance. OK. Um, maybe then I would be more inclined to, to look at this as, as there's something there. But they don't tell me any of that important information in this article. Right. So you're thinking. I, I, I guess that was what I was saying too, is that there's not enough information about how the, how the experiment was run. Cause clearly if you saw a hundred faces, unless you were in San Francisco on Pride weekend, it is unlikely that 50 of them were gay. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, just, just, just the numbers. We don't have those kind of numbers out there. So if in this study, 50 of the 100 people they saw were gay and they identified 60% of them correctly, to Brian's point, they were primed to say gay more often than they would on the street, if you will, in a normal circumstance. Because if they, True. if they said 50 out of 100 people they saw on the street were gay, they would be wrong. Unless circumstances were extremely rare. Right. Just because we don't make up that much of the population. It's, so again, yeah. I, I think it's very interesting, um, that there is this thing in there. You know, again, I, I don't 
quite know the statistics and the, the structure of the study enough to be able to really speak to how great uh, this was. But again, it, it seems flawed to me. <laughs> I, th- I think yeah. I've the same instinctual kind of reaction of, okay, tell me more how you did this. And what were you looking now, for? Tell me you were looking here's for a- gay... Here's a possible mind bender here too. I understand what you're saying, which is that you would trust more a study on facial recognition that seemed to indicate with results that that gaydar was real than you would the, with a gaydar study that seems to indicate that gaydar is real. Because the gaydar study seems to indicate right off the bat that yeah, we accept that gaydar is real. How accurate is it? That's kind of yeah. that's kind of what I yeah. Yeah, but, and, and it also you know that's also ad you know the way that the way journalists do stuff. I mean they. They constantly ruin experiments with their language. You know, was it a gaydar thing? You know, to Brian's point, they could have been asking for, you know, here's a list of facial or a list of features that you might expect of somebody based on a quick view of their face. You might think that they're intelligent. You might think that they're bookish. You know what I'm saying? And one of the, if one of the categories was gay, and it was all these other ones as well, and they pick that correctly 60% of the time, now you've impressed the hell out of me. Yeah. But if you now, were like gay, not gay. Now here's a mind bender, though. <laughs> what if what if the study was actually 100 percent accurate, but the people giving the information about themselves that they used the photos of, of in the first place were not being were not being honest? Oh, I don't know if you got the notice. Gay people never lie. We're <laughs> <laughs> incapable. So yeah, I yeah, that I, can't happen. I, I don't know that I even like that premise. Uh, I, I I don't know how I can really respond to that. I, I can tell you that I have a, a visceral response uh, of dislike towards your premise. <laughs> uh, um, but I, yeah, I mean, maybe it's it, just your perception of my premise. Though. Yeah, maybe it's just my <laughs> perception. Uh, I, I think you're being a little satirical here, don't you? I think I'm being very tongue in cheek. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, anyway, I, I just, I don't know. I, I um, I, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like it. I and I and there's a lot of things about the article and about the way that they did the study that make me really question what was going on here. I mean, you can't get yeah. if you can't but, give somebody a study with let's say 50/50, you know, gay straight pictures um when that's not it, the population statistics, can you? My my understanding also is that gaydar is not just visual but is actual actually made up of a bunch of social cues. So in other words, right. the if you if your gaydar is pinging on somebody, it's not just their face, but it's things that they do and how they act. Okay. You know, if a man is wearing a woman's dress, is he gay? Not necessarily. Most likely not. Most, most likely not, most exactly. Cases, most cases transvestites are not gay. They're breeders. But I mean, I will say though that if you, if, if, if we had a contest, and again, we had a hundred people just off the, you and I went down to the 16th Street Mall, right? And we just got a hundred people and we had to make a flash inside gay or not gay. I bet you I'd be better at it than you. If, you know, if we then took those hundred random people and questioned them and they answered honestly, of course the gay people would. Um, but if they all answered honestly, I bet you my statistics would be better as a, as a gay person. Yours would be as a straight person. That's interesting. I think I, that yeah, would be maybe. a fun experiment. I, I think, think that, be, yeah, that would, would be, be a fun experiment. Yeah, and and they didn't they don't you know we don't know um, how the, if they bias the people doing the study either. You know, we we don't know what what, the, what their sexual orientation was, and I think that that right. can influence the study as well. I, I think that would have a lot to do with it. 
I'm just picturing us hanging out at the 16th Street Mall, you two sitting there writing down who you think is gay and not, and one of us having to stop, everyone's like, excuse me, I have a simple question for you. Yeah, exactly, and- right? <laughs> How many? I, and and we have to and we have to decide whether or not Ian's going to get slapped when he asks. Yeah, right. Ian's the control in the experiment. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing is that you know you, the people that they got the pictures of. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, now they 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 were clear in the fact that they removed everything except just basic facial features. Yeah, they removed hair and all. And yeah, I know. Tats, piercings, whatnot. Yeah, see, to me, yeah, like I say, uh, interesting. Interesting. I don't know if I would. I don't know if it's if it's science life changing. I'm not going to bet more. the farm on it. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Is that it? What else uh, we got? We, what's what's our conclusion? This is the big part. Ian, oh, you yeah. put this together. Your conclusion well, for us today. Well, I, I think we've all agreed our minds can really mess with us, and we don't have as much control over as we'd like to. Well, and, you know. yeah. And the more and the better we think we are at perception, probably the worse that we are. <laughs> Yep. But that's one of the reasons why, you know, you research things, you look into science, you discover what's really going on because you, know, you can be tricked. Your mind is not going to be honest with you because it's not rigged to be. Yeah. In fact, the more intelligent and the more creative you are, the more likely you are that your mind is going to mess with you and the more careful you have to be about what you perceive. Mm-hmm. With with greater intelligence comes greater imagination, and with greater imagination comes the greater ability for the mind to play tricks on you. Yep. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of humility to recognize that not everything you see is real. Yeah. And and when I say see, I I, I really do mean that perception thing because I really I think we do perceive with all of our senses, and I think our minds are so advanced that there's that gestalt kind of thing. Um, you know, you probably heard of, about people who they they kind of think it's extra extra sensory perception. Um, again, I'm going back to this thinking fast and slow because it's been awesome so far. They use the example of these firefighters go in and they're working on this kitchen, and all of a sudden the chief is like, "Out, everybody, get out!" And he doesn't know why. He says it because they've got it fairly well under control. But there's something about the situation that's wrong to him. And as soon as they're like a second after they're all out, the entire floor collapses because it turns out the fire that they thought they were fighting was really in the basement. And but that was completely like an that, you know. I, I would say to that, Kimberly, that he probably had highly developed instincts in the first place, as and well as an incredible not- amount of experience, which is why he was the chief. And they right. could be wrong. Well, the point times. is that he wasn't conscious of why he knew his team had to get out of there. He he right. was perceiving things that he had not he hadn't either had time or his mind hadn't assimilated it into facts that he could think but, about, but he knew. Yeah. But, but he, he trusted could be his wrong instincts. Nine times out of ten. But they don't care about those nine times. It's that tenth time where they're gonna be amazed like, Oh, look at his ability. That's but, true too. You know, confirmation bias. Yeah, confirmation bias. Yeah. Good, yeah. good point. All right. Well, let me recommend some books on the subject. Um, of course, the first one is, of course, The Invisible Gorilla, which was a fantastic read. I really had a lot of that. That book was fun. Um, this book was fun. Slights of Mind, which is basically some uh, uh, neurologist that went to learn magic and tried to learn how uh, magic works on the mind. And uh, so this is their journey to become magicians and, and then kind of explain what how these tricks um, how we're being tricked by these tricks. Um, and that was a really fun read, an excellent book. Um, How the Brain Works by Steven Pinker. This is a textbook, practically. Uh, I think it's been used as a textbook. It's very thorough. It's very big. Um, settle in and uh, and uh, take in what you can because it is a lot of information. Uh, and then uh, Kimberly's been talking about Thinking, thinking Fast and Slow uh, by Daniel Kaufman. 
And uh, I, I've been hearing about this book. I've got it. I haven't read it yet. But uh, now that Kimberly's been talking about it, I, I'm going to have to move that to the front of my list. Cool. Yeah. I think we might be doing it in the August um, Humanists of Colorado book group. So maybe oh. you'll attend. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah that would. I'm really excited to, to read it. I've been hearing a lot of good things about it, and now I'm even more curious. So, cool. All right. Well, uh, anything else? Nope. Let's wrap well, we it. Haven't, we haven't mentioned it in a while, but don't forget to hunt down our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Always looking for ideas and feedback. Yes, yes, we we, we like the feedback. Even Kimberly likes the feedback, right? I love the feedback. Look, I, 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 I love the feedback. I really do. I'm going to have questions. Hey, there's questions. It's, it's not, you're not shut down. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me this evening. All right. Well, have a good one. Say good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics Podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, no derivatives, 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright. Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 